As we pick up the Sermon on the Mount, be sure to picture Jesus speaking to the disciples. They're like kind of in this little circle around him, but everybody else is crowding around to listen in. This is the Sermon on the Mount and uh, Luke's version, the Sermon on the Plain, our first and foremost discipleship training 101. As Jesus teaches the disciples, he's just called how to actually be helpful to him which makes sense because they obviously have no clue. All they've done so far is fight with John the Baptist disciples. (laughs) They have not been a lot of help so far. Jesus' life on earth will be very short and he needs to get his disciples up to speed quickly. When we stopped last week, we'd just gotten to the blue purple section. The part about how the disciples are to relate to each other. We saw Jesus insist that our attitude towards one another must be one of humility. We must lay our pride down. If they insult us, so be it. Jesus says we must hold our possessions, our money, and our status with an open hand. When someone thinks you owe them something, give it to them readily. And then go above and beyond. Take one more step of generosity. This, I think, is our way of turning our face towards God and acknowledging in a very tangible way that whatever God gives us individually is intended as a blessing for all of us. This is our modern day sacrifice. The fact that we do not see it this way is a Western cultural issue. Um, If you spend time in Africa, you will discover that this is exactly how they see money and possessions and everything they, um, the, the poor in Africa, if one person gets something, it, they assume it's intended for everybody. And This generosity, Jesus says, should not be limited to our possessions and our money, but should extend to our hearts. We are to go that extra mile with our hearts. When we have been wronged or hurt or wounded, however it is that we've been sinned against, we must do as our Heavenly Father does towards us. We must forgive. Jesus makes a pretty strong statement about this, saying, if you forgive others for their slip-ups, your heavenly Father will forgive yours. But if you do not forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you either. And yes, the Greek there is the word for trespasses, missteps, slip-ups. As we noticed last week, Jesus seems to be talking about the micro level, about our normal everyday relationships with our friends and family and coworkers. Hopefully, they're not committing huge, egregious sins against us, but are just stepping on our toes, messing up and hurting our feelings. This is, you know, normal everyday stuff. Jesus says, get over it. Forgive them for these small slights. I wonder what it looks like for us to cling to our petty grudges and what it looks like if God does not forgive us our slip-ups. That doesn't sound good at all. I also wonder, what does that word forgive mean? Turns out 
that the Greek word usually is usually here for uh, forgive is usually translated one of two ways. 49 times, this word is used a lot, 49 times it's translated as, as some sort of forgive or forgiveness, but 62 times it's some form of leave, let alone, or abandon. And that makes a huge difference. What if Jesus is saying, if you will not just move on past other people's slip-ups, then God won't leave yours alone either. That actually makes sense to me. And I for sure would like God to just pass on by some of my mistakes, nothing to see here, move right along, and then work with on them with me in a more gentle, longer-term way. So taken all together, this does not look at all to me as if Jesus is telling his disciples that God can, will consign them to hell if they don't forgive someone. That's just not the words and not the context here. At the beginning of chapter seven, Jesus continues this thought saying, however you judge others, that's how you'll, you will be judged. So don't judge others at all. <laughs> that sounds like good advice, even though it's very hard to do. Then he says, why do you focus on the chaff in your neighbor's eye and don't even notice the beam in your own? I love this. This is a literal translation of the Greek. Again, the chaff clues us in that, that the whole context of what Jesus is speaking about here are not big, huge, egregious, destructive sins. That He's talking about just the minor, the irritations of living together as people in community. So we've already seen how chaff is a common metaphor for sins. They are worthless, maybe harmful acts that are no good for anything. Chaff is, is light and ephemeral. It's like husks off of, a, a, off of grain. So these acts would burn up in an instant in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the beam in our own eye, a beam is what the whole weight of a house rests on. A beam takes forever to burn away. The imagery here is staggering. Then Jesus says something we often skim right by. He says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before pigs, or they'll simply trample on them and then turn around and rip you to shreds. We need to think about this. There is an, the obvious surface meaning um, that is nothing more than wise counsel. Don't make the tenderest parts of yourself available to people who are not going to treat it with the respect it deserves. You do not need to tell other people everything. You can set boundaries. You should set boundaries. But there is more to it than this. Jesus is also saying that there are people out there who do not have a humble heart. I know it's a shock, right? This is the dogs and pigs part. Such people are hard. They're hardened. Sometimes they're religious leaders, but sometimes they're across the table from you at dinner. And this is such a huge teaching. Jesus is telling us if they do not have a humble heart, be silent. Just keep your words to yourself. If you try to convince them with words, they will trample 
all over your words and then use your words against you to rip you to shreds. As he nears crucifixion, Jesus is going to model for us how to do this in an actual crisis situation. But this is also for our everyday interactions. It's a terribly important lesson that we need to take to heart. This is for our own protection. And lastly, the third meaning embedded here is that if by some miracle, we have taken care of the beam in our own eye, if we are in a position to help our neighbor rid themselves of the chaff in their own eye, even then, if they don't want our help, we need to back off or they will turn and bite us. We cannot force repentance or change on someone, even for their own good, or we will do more harm than good. We need to leave people their own agency. As disciples, we must not get in between people and God. Never even get in between them and the cliff they insist on jumping off. They get to make their own choices. Jesus is giving awfully good advice for anyone wanting to be an effective, helpful, and healthy disciple. And Jesus sums up all these teachings about how we relate to others in one simple, memorable statement. In all, the things you wish others would do to you, so also you do to them. This is the law and the prophets. Now, this ties directly back to what Jesus began the sermon with. He said he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And we talked about how the commands in the Hebrew Bible that are being referenced here consistently speak about mercy, justice, and humility. The message has not changed one iota. Mercy, justice, and humility should be the characteristics of our inward selves and of how we walk on our mission. God's commands are utterly consistent all the way through the Hebrew Bible and all the way through the New Testament. It boils down to these basic, basic things. God loves us and wants nothing more than to bless us beyond anything we can imagine. God wants to dwell with us and walk with us. Our all-powerful God is humble and willing to humble himself to be with us. That is beautifully embodied in the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, and the temple in the Hebrew Bible. And by Jesus Christ in person in the New Testament. And we must walk in this world, this earth, in the same way God does, with mercy, justice, and humility. That's it. That is the law and the prophets. That is the Hebrew Bible. That is the New Testament in a nutshell. So, so simple, so beautiful, so exactly perfect. You'd think there's nothing left to say, but we still have the pink section to go. This is where Jesus explains what God's part is in all of this. Jesus says, you know, it was said to the ancients, do not swear falsely, 
Everyone nods their heads up and down. But I say to you, do not make any vow at all, either by heaven, which is God's throne, or by earth, which is God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, which is the city of the great king. Don't even swear by your own head. Meaning um, Jesus is talking about like an oath, such as you would say, you have my word on it, or um, making a gentleman's promise, as, as we might say. Jesus says, you cannot make one hair on your own head black or white. Jesus is basically saying there's no real power behind our human oaths. We cannot control what happens despite our best intentions. Instead, Jesus says, all you can really do is say yes or no. (laughs) Claiming anything beyond that is rooted in evil, he says. Jesus is talking about power here. He's explaining how important it is that we acknowledge in all our ways and in all our words that we are taking the steps we can, but only God can ensure the outcome. The corollary of this, of course, is that even though we can't make anything happen, God can, and God's got this. To be disciples, we need to trust that God's got this and that he's got abundant life and blessing in mind. Jesus then does a deep dive on what this kind of trust looks like. Jesus always puts feet on things. He says, you don't need to worry about any part of your life, not your food, not your clothes, none of it. Worry in this context means being concerned or distracted by what you eat or drink or wear, by caring what others will think, or perhaps by focusing all your energy on getting more, more, more. But it also means being anxious over any of this. Don't let the uncertainty of these daily things eat at you. Jesus says, life is more than what you eat. And your body is more than what you wear. You, you matter. Look at the birds in the air and the flowers in the field. Your heavenly father takes care of their needs. Are you not much more valuable? Just look at those flowers, Jesus says. They are more splendid than King Solomon in all his glory. God takes such great care with these things that live only for a day and then are thrown into the fire. How much more care will he take for you, you of little faith? You can hear the warmth and humor, the motherliness in Jesus' voice in that last phrase. He knows us well. He says, all these things the Gentiles seek after, but your father knows you need them. Instead, seek after God's kingdom and righteousness and justice and all the rest of it will be gathered to you. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble in it all by itself. Jesus says, just ask and it will be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Notice that our part is to take that first step in faith against a barrier, knowing that God, our our Father, is good. Jesus points out, you would never give your child a rock if he asked for bread. 
You would never give your child a snake if he asked for a fish. If even those who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more so will your father in heaven give good gifts to you? This is not prosperity gospel. This is not the big vending machine in the sky. This is a simple parental metaphor where God behaves as any wise and loving parent would. We as children do not have the range of vision he does. So we have to trust that he loves us and has our well-being in mind when he responds to our requests. And that's it. That is all of the core teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It all makes so much sense to me when we sort it out by theme rather than trying to read the pieces all jumbled up as they appear in Matthew and Luke. Even the Lord's Prayer makes more sense now. First is the declaration that God is God and far above us in every way. This is where everything starts. Our Father, you who are holy, our Father dwelling in heaven, your very name is holy. Notice how the color coding of each line matches the three major themes. Here's the green part about our mission with God and with Jesus. Jesus says, let your kingdom come, your desire come into being here on earth, just as it is in heaven. And here's the pink part, God's part. Give us the sustenance we need today. And here's the blue purple part, the do unto others part. Forgive us what we owe just as we forgive those who owe us something. Then pray, do not bring us to the test, but rescue us from evil. For the kingdom is yours and all power and glory are yours now and for all ages. Amen. Well, obviously, God doesn't actually need reminding that we are weak and only human. It's we who need to remind ourselves that we rely on God for our protection. We are speaking that knowledge with our voice. We are saying it to God. We are acknowledging it. That, I think, is why Jesus puts this part into our prayer. And taken all together, this is so clear, so simple, and so powerful. And that brings us full circle to the Beatitudes. In the overview, I referred to them as the pay scale of the kingdom of heaven. They're in both Matthew's version and Luke's. Matthew makes it clear by his wording that Jesus looks directly at his disciples when he speaks these Beatitudes. That's part of how we know the Sermon on the Mount was directed at them. He is teaching his disciples. Let's look at them a little closer. I'm going to be giving you kind of an amplified translation from the Greek so you get the flavor of the words used. The first one is, blessed are those who are desperately destitute, absolute paupers, crouching and cowering, for the kingdom of God is yours. That's Luke's version. The phrase kingdom of God and kingdom of, of the heavens is used interchangeably between Matthew and Luke. They mean, they mean the same thing. One uses one phrase and the other uses the other. But notice that Matthew adds in the spirit in his version. 
Blessed are those who are desperately destitute in the spirit. Whereas Luke omits that from his version. If you sit down and compare their versions of the Beatitudes overall, you'll see that Matthew tends to spiritualize them, while Luke stays more earthy. I I think Luke's version makes more sense in, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go back to his version. I think Jesus is talking to the poorest of the poor here, the lame, the blind, the destitute, the stomped on, and the ignored. These, therefore, must be the ones he has chosen as his disciples. He's speaking to his disciples here, and he's saying, God sees you. Yes, you, the one flat on your back, the wiped out one. God values you, and God has bestowed his entire kingdom on you. Not will bestow, has bestowed. It is yours. This is totally consistent with the good news Jesus has been proclaiming since day one. We know that at least some of Jesus' disciples are well off, and I I think he's warning those disciples that have money that even though they may lose everything by following him, it will be worth it. No matter how poor or despised they become, God will still see them, and God's kingdom is in their hands. Luke's version of the next one says, Blessed are those who weep, sob, wail, mourn, and lament, for you will laugh, which is great. But I also love Matthew's version. He says, you will be paracleted. The paraclete is what Jesus later calls the Holy Spirit, the spirit he sends to care for us after his death. The word paraclete in Greek means an advocate someone who stands up for you. So all this wailing and lamenting, if it needs a a paraclete to stand up for you, all this wailing and lamenting must be over the terrible injustices being done. And that makes a lot of sense in the time of the Roman occupation, right? These are an oppressed people that Jesus is talking to. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you will have a paraclete, an advocate standing up for you. You will be given a voice. This next one is only in Mark Matthew's version. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But that word meek in English doesn't convey the full meaning of the Greek. The Greek word means those who are powerful, but who exercise their power with gentleness and tenderness. Isn't that a great word? We don't have that word. So it doesn't translate well. Jesus seems to be saying, blessed are those who minister to others gently, allowing the full power of the spirit to flow through them in a way that heals and does not harm. And who would the disciples be ministering to? the destitute and the wounded, right? Those in the muck and the mire of this earth. And so it makes sense that these tender ministers would be given as a reward the fruit of their labor, the earth and all that is in it, where they walk and where they have poured themselves out is where their reward truly is. 
This is where the disciples are called. It brings tears to my eyes to understand how encouraging Jesus is being to his disciples. Here's the next one. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting now, for you will be fully satisfied. That's Luke's very earthy version. You know, you kind of picture tables laden with food, right? But Matthew spiritualizes the language again. His version says, blessed are those hungering and thirsting for righteousness or justice. That puts a little different spin on it. Again, I think Luke's version makes more sense in the context of Jesus training his disciples. But version works well as well. Jesus is talking to men and women who have left everything because they see that Jesus has something more, something real, something powerful, and they want it desperately. Jesus says, you will get all you're hungering for and more. The next one is, blessed are the merciful, compassionate ones, for you will be shown mercy and compassion. This is a reprise of Jesus, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is core teaching. Jesus wants his disciples to remember this. Then comes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, this one confuses people. The word pure here means clean with nothing mixed in. Thayer's Greek lexicon says that this word is used to mean being purified by fire (laughs) or like a vine pruned to bear fruit. Now that may be a theological overlay by fire, but it does make sense here. Think about all we know about God's consistent daily offer to purify us by burning away our dross daily. This is the very function of the fire of the Holy Spirit. And when we look at it this way, it makes sense that the reward would be to see God. The Holy Spirit allows us to draw near to God and God to draw near to us. I think Jesus is saying, if you're thirsting to see God, Let yourselves be purified in the Holy Spirit. Walk in that light every day. Do not be afraid to let go and let the dross be burned away. For that will bring you closer and closer into communion with God. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says, for they will be called by the name sons of God. And there's nothing mysterious here. Peace comes from God. Therefore, those who follow God will also bring peace in their wake. They make peace wherever they go. Peace is a fruit. It's one of the ones we need to be looking for um, when, when people are saying they speak for God. Does peace follow in their wake? That doesn't necessarily mean that the disciples will be received with peace. Quite the contrary. Both Matthew and Luke record Jesus warning his disciples that they will be insulted and persecuted and lied about. They will be cast out and called evil. But Jesus says, jump for joy when those things happen to you because you are being treated just like the prophets before you. It means you're on the right track and great is your reward in heaven. And that's how the Beatitudes end. 
Jesus is telling his disciples, it's going to be really, really rough. But if they can remember Jesus' words, they'll be able to keep things in perspective no matter how bad it gets. These are words to memorize and store in our hearts. Luke then adds a series of woes to his sermon on the the plain that do not appear in Matthew's version. You can almost see Jesus kind of standing up, stretching, looking out, seeing the important people who have pushed themselves to the front of the crowd, getting the best spots and hovering near every word. Jesus has a pay scale for them too. Woe to you who are rich. You are already being comforted. Woe to you who are satisfied. You will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will weep, wail, mourn, and lament. Woe to you when everyone thinks highly of you, for that is exactly how their your ancestors treated the false prophets. Now, all these woes make sense. They are just the flip side of the blessings. The choice is ours. We choose our own adventure, and our choice will yield either blessings or woes in our lives. We've done it. We've looked at the entire Sermon on the Mount, as well as Luke's version, which is called Sermon on the Plain, and we've seen such beauty and encouragement. Jesus is teaching his disciples very practical, important ways they need, things they need to know as they begin helping him in his ministry. So we'll spend our breakout time reflecting on all this. What tools have we added to our um, backpacks? Just the to- what tools has Jesus given us? The, um, uh, the study guide uh, questions are a little bit ton- tongue-in-cheek. Um, so uh, you can kind of uh, skim through those. It's, it's, they're a little bit fun. And I am going to put you in your breakout rooms and see you in 15 minutes. There we are. Everybody's back. Yeah, we have a question right off the bat. Okay. We're very discombobulated on something. Yes, we were. (laughs) Our question is, okay, the hunger and thirst, whether it's after righteousness or not, the, the the poor and the destitute, whether it's spiritually or physically. And what did you think? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Or the kingdom of God or whatever. And you said that's right here on earth. We know of good people who have starved to death. That doesn't fit. We're, we're, our brains are like, it's not fitting in the box. Help. What do y'all think? I mean, we have two different versions of these words from Jesus. But in either version, it still doesn't fit. Because they were... If they were just poor and they starved to death, that doesn't fit. If they were people of faith who were praying and and asking God to send them what they needed and they starved to death, that doesn't fit either definition. I see what you're where where you're wrestling. Okay, if I can extend on that, the other thing was. That it's, you know, we talked about, is it spiritual that you, you'll receive these fruits in heaven, but then at the same time you said heaven is here. So, yeah.
and then in another part of the of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, don't worry. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the grass of the field. Our Father in heaven takes care of them. Why won't he take care of you? Of course he'll take care of you. But again, we know people who have been in situations, people of faith who starve to death and who die of exposure and who have literally nothing. And it, we can't figure out how to reconcile those things. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Joe. Well, is it possibly a lesson on the flip side? For those of us that had enough to not let that person starve? That's a wonderful question. And maybe, you know, sometimes we say things and it's the flip side that's the lesson. I don't know. But we don't know. We're confused. Enlighten us, dear. No, I'm not, I'm not the one with all the answers. What do y'all think? I want to go back and reread that book, uh, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of Job, that it's not about the bad things. It's about the the test of your faith. Do you, can you believe in God till the bitter end, not just the happy end? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can see that that you're um, part of what you're wrestling with is uh, in the poor in spirit. Let's take that as an example, that there are people who are physically, literally poor and destitute. Um, and and then when 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 you flip over to the, the poor in spirit, um, what you're equating that with is is praying for relief from that poverty and not being answered. I'm not sure that's what being poor in spirit means. So if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? What do y'all think poor in spirit could mean? Well, I, I kind of understood poor in spirit as having more to do with um, like feeling oppressed, feeling depressed, mm-hmm. feeling hopeless, um, those kinds of situations. And to me, then the reassurance that the kingdom of heaven will be very present for them, um, that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, although you still have people who are for biological reasons are poor in spirit by my understanding of that phrase. Mm-hmm. And um, they can't see the kingdom of heaven because of a chemical imbalance. And mm-hmm. so that still takes me back to, okay, so what is Jesus really talking about in either version mm-hmm. of that? What if we what if we took that approach, Marlene, and worked backwards from the reward? What is the kingdom of heaven that's being promised here? What does that phrase mean? The presence of God? Well, to me, that means that I am capable, I am... I don't want to say blessed. That's a very laden word for me that 
if I'm blessed, it means you're not sometimes, and I would never, ever say that to anyone. Um, but um, it's that I see the Christ in everyone I need, and it means everyone. Not just the ones that are easy to see the Christ in, but the ones that I struggle with. That's what that phrase means to me. That's what is, how has how has Jesus been describing the kingdom of heaven? Oh, justice, freedom from oppression, um, those sorts of things. Right. Getting along, everybody getting along. The wedding banquet, the wars. It's it's uh, an existence marked by mercy and justice and whatever the third one is. Humility and compassion. Humility, yes. humility that's uh-huh. yeah. Humility. That and and he wraps that phrase in with that is the will of God, you know? And and that kingdom ha- is here now and is not yet. Both. Right? We viscerally understand this. We understand that Jesus is saying we can choose to operate in the kingdom of heaven. We can be merciful, just, compassionate, and humble. We can be all these things. We can treat each other in these ways. We can call others into the kingdom of heaven. Correct? Yes. But we can't make their choices for them. Evil still exists in the world. Bad things happen to good people. And so I think that it's helpful when we're reading this beatitude is that Jesus is saying God's will, the kingdom of heaven, is going to happen and is happening now. You get to be part of it. But everybody has a choice, which is why the woes followed in Luke. Okay. So what does poor in spirit mean then? So what would poor in spirit? That word poor meant destitute, crouching, cowering. It to me means the people who have been beaten down by church. Beaten by religion. It's the people who are afraid that God is out to get them. It's the so people. Some of those people who don't believe in Jesus's vision of the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. It it could be it can be that too. They're clearly bereft. They don't know it. I don't think. I think the people who don't see Jesus' vision. Well, I think the people who don't see Jesus' vision tend to be uh, have their own vision um, that you know is more arrogant and and more worldly. You know what I mean? Unless I'm misunderstanding. Whereas the people I'm talking about have been caught in the middle. I, I can see somebody being poor in spirit. Somebody who doesn't see Jesus's vision is somebody who's been oppressed and beaten down and thinks that there's oh, no I such see. thing. No Where such the vision thing. has been denied them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. We're talking about the same thing. Yes. And so you know, I think Jesus is saying to you, God is different than what you've ever imagined God to be. 
don't believe that version of God that you've been sold. Yale, when you were describing the oppression earlier, what also came to mind for me is not just people who have been hurt by the church, but also judgmental, haughty individuals who are lording their beliefs over people Mm-hmm. And yet, they are poor of spirit. They yes. are. The I agree. That are hurt. I was going to say this is my mother who goes to church, and then we go to lunch afterwards, and she makes horrible, judgmental comments about people. Did you just listen to? Yeah, yeah. That's what Hello? I was. Thinking. They don't know what they're missing. Go ahead, Woody. Well, so in other in other words, based on what Julia said, it would be people who. Do not it would include people who do not live in humility, and who are who do not want justice uh, and mercy. But those those are those could be poor in spirit people also. They are poor in spirit, but I think that Jesus is. So we've got a spectrum here. We've got the people we're talking about right now who are willfully, you know, who are willfully or not willfully, you know, not merciful and not compassionate and and not just. Okay, they're not fair. We've got the people on the other end, the disciples who are like four feet in this. You know, they they absolutely have jumped in 100%. They totally get this. And we've got the people in the middle who have been beat down are cowering and destitute in spirit, desperate. Okay, they're desperate for living water. Those are the people for whom the reward is the kingdom of heaven. The people on the on the end where they are 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 lording it over people and leading people astray and beating up on other people. If they just turn around and see it, their reward is the kingdom of heaven too. But I'm not sure that's who's in view here. It seems like phrase. Jesus would be addressing more the comment about do unto others as you would have others do unto you to those people. Mm-hmm. Stop and look at how you're treating others. Is that how you want to be treated? Exactly. Oh, and take the chaff out of, don't worry about the chaff in their eyes and think about the beam in yours. Right. And that's where I come back to. And I know that people have to want to accept help, but I think it still comes back to, um, you know, are we doing what we can for the man we pass on the street, you know the song about I passed him for the twenty first time. So I think it's it, it's a double layer. Not only are these people going to be, but yeah, you might want to step up. Which yeah. is part of us being disciples. Yeah. That is part of us bringing the kingdom of heaven to the now. That is part of our job. We yeah. are to give alms. <laughs> we are to. That's a shorthand for we're supposed to do something about that those physical things, those physical needs. But, but the, the idea that, that these people, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it seems to me that can't mean that they're going to find wealth and riches and lots of food. And I mean, it's, it's got to mean something different. I'm not sure exactly what. I'm not sure the kingdom of heaven means wealth and riches and lots of food. Right. So that gets back, to, that gets back to what does it mean? It, does it mean a world in which people live with 
humility and seek justice and mercy. Um, and, ab and, ab and, ab and abundance. There is enough here for all of us. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just not distributed properly. An example is my son takes food to the homeless the day after holidays because the churches are always there at Thanksgiving and Christmas, but they still got to eat after that. So he teases me because I seem to know where more homeless people are than my husband. And he can go with me. It's like, mom, drive me to take the food. And he does that all the time. And I think that's part of if you have eyes, see. If you have ears, hear. That is part of being a worker in the kingdom of heaven. That's part of bringing the kingdom of heaven into the now. Yeah, we say we're the body of Christ. So are we using our arms and our legs and our mouth to help those who need it right now? Yeah. Um, so I want to give a quick shout out, if it's okay, to um, Marlu and Shirley, because uh, Lumar and Shirley, because um, as we were discussing the difference between Luke and Matthew, uh, uh, the concept Shirley brought up was uh, their professions as disciples. And Luke was a physician. So that's more an earthy healing thing. And Matthew was a tax collector. So it's interesting to me that he puts in the spirit. I mean, is that like kind of like forgiving <laughs> wealthy transgressions? Yeah. That is excellent insight. Try. Oh, you muted yourself, Winnie. Whoops, I'm sorry. They're trying to uh, uh, say forward their, from their past transgressions. Well, just like each of us has a different point of view, and if we were to take the same concept and express it in words, it might look a little different. Oh, yours isn't working. No, I'm, sorry? I'm sorry, Brian. To me, sorry. Oh, okay. My computer's in the other room, and I was out here, so I wanted to come gotcha. listen. Gotcha. I uh, I brought up that when I was younger, that I always heard when they were talking about starving people that it meant that when they got to heaven, they get all the food they wanted to. But this turns that kind of on its ear because that's not what it's saying. Right. It's saying, get out there and do something about this. Right now. So, so, to, go, so to go back to what I still see as a big discrepancy between Matthew's version um, is the general consensus then that what Luke is talking about, you know, where it sounds, it looks on the page like what he's saying is um, you're, you're not going incredible need that it's going to kill you. Um, you broke up a little instead, there, Marlene. Can you, can you lean forward just a um, little and, yeah. and try again? 
Yeah, I'm having internet issues. Mm -hmm. um, that that Luke is not. Saying God's going to guarantee that you're not going to starve to death. Um, but <laughs> more, what he's saying is that sort of in a, in a, in a reverse way, it is incumbent upon those who have to make sure and follow God's teaching and not to the best of your ability, allow people to get to that point. But it's also it's saying, I think, to, to, to those people who are poor, literally physically poor and destitute, to not give up hope. Right. God is on your side. God's direction is the direction where there is abundance for everybody. There's food for everybody. Hang in there. Yes, I grew up without in a very dire situation and I live a life of abundance now and I don't know when that changed, maybe 30 years ago, but it, it happened slowly and all at once at the same time. What do you mean by that, Julia? Well, I always feel like I don't have, and yet I have so much. And it went from, I had a situation where when I was a single mom, 19 years old, I made $120 a week. I had no money for transportation. I didn't have a car. I walked everywhere. And I... I remember I would find nickels to dry my clothes because I didn't have clothes money, laundry money. I didn't have anything, but um, I would buy Keebler fudge stripe cookies to make it through a week of my lunches. I would eat two cookies a day. And at night I would eat a can of cream of mushroom or cream of chicken soup. I did not have a pot. I had a spoon. I would borrow a neighbor's can opener. I'd just go to the neighbor and ask him to open my can, peel the label off, put it on the electric burner, eat a little of it cold, and then add some water and instant rice. And that's what I ate. I had nothing. Yet I had my child and I wasn't in the situation I was in before that Although there was wealth, it was intolerable. So how I worked myself through that, you know, I had a couple of jobs. I got on with the law firm and I slowly came out of it. But I don't know when that was. And I, I, I think that in this particular blessing, is for people like you especially. Because there were people in my life that helped. It was, it is saying, yes, it is saying, I think it is saying that at a deep level, you can let go and know that you're destined for abundance, that that is your heritage and your right. 
And I also think, like you said, it's about hope. That's a very different kind of way than when, when you, I mean, when you're in a situation like Julia has been in, it is human. It is natural to grow up with a core of scarcity. Yes. And always being afraid that there things will be scarce, you know, and I think Jesus is reaching right into that hurt place and saying, that's not what God wants for you not scarcity. God wants abundance for you in every way. Well, and I know that people helped in my life and took me in when I had to go through that. And I've paid it forward repeatedly, taking people in, wonderful people in my life. And so if I can do something to make life better for somebody else, I try and do that. And not just if it's convenient, if it's inconvenient to you, just try and do good things for other people because, but for the grace of others, I was in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Did anybody else find the end result of the Sermon on the Mount, like when you look back over it, and I hope you noticed that I color-coded your, the study guide, um, that when you look back over it, how simple and coherent the messaging is? We didn't do that. We talked about forgiveness. Mm, Tell me about (laughs) forgiveness. We were talking about how it's the small things. Am I getting it right, Woody? You're muted. You're muted. Yeah. Okay. We talked about what you mentioned, Gail. Um, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, <clears throat> where God says, if you don't give, if you don't forgive, then God's not going to forgive you. And and how that made, your explanation made a lot of sense that it doesn't it's not the kind of forgiveness that we usually are talking about but we spent a lot of time talking about that good good because there's there's a lot of shellac on that verse um and there's a um quite a bit to to understand if you look back at what the the greek actually means and what you know what jesus is talking about which where he's talking about the chaff the, the small things we talked about it a little bit and ended up with your meaning but i was going to say in in that meaning context is everything and sometimes we get down in the little nitty-gritty like turn the other cheek and it's actually the concept we're supposed to be changed to and speaking of that the article i read it this morning because i'm behind that you put for last week the article that you oh yeah 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 yeah. Uh Wow! See, he completely addressed the 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 right cheek thing. Totally and did. In context, it. Wow, you know. Um, yeah. If y'all yeah, that that article is one is one way to look at it, you know. And and in the class, I I look at it and and from another perspective. Um, people. Well, have, he was talking about the left hand being dirty. Yeah. And if yeah. they hit you with the right hand, it was a backhand, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And my point um, with that is really, I don't think Jesus cared whether you got hit with the left hand or the right hand. The point was Mm -hmm. that it was a slap 
It did not do you, do you severe injury. What got hurt was your pride. Lay down your pride. Right. That was the point. Well, you know, we talked about the, the forgiveness thing a little bit. Um, and, um, and I think it was Shirley mentioned that, um, that what, what we thought, you know, what it sounded like was being said was that, um, you know, not that God will not forgive you, but that God will keep bringing up your own little <laughs> craplets um, and saying, yeah, you know, going back to the, 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 the mode in your neighbor's eye and the beam in yours, you know, you shouldn't be picking on those people for those little things because just look at your own life. And then I was reminded, I read something a few weeks ago, and I think it was by Peter Enns, but I can't remember for sure where he was talking about the same thing that, um, again, it's not saying God won't forgive you your sins. It's saying that if you are in a state of unforgiveness towards others, that your heart is in a forgiveness from God. Mm. Because you're holding in all this resentment and this anger and this, this sense of vengeance and that doesn't make your heart tender to receive forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you can't give it, you know, or vice versa. I have a comment just listening to Marlene. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I don't think anywhere in this is it you where, where a person can use these verses on another person. I think they're mm -hmm. all about mind your own business. Yeah. Well, and, your own behavior, yeah. Yeah, it's self-examination here. It's and like, action to help others. Dual. To, to right. Try. But it's not about, the Bible says, right, from one person to another. It's not about theological bludgeoning. Exactly. It's, it's like a... I gotta write that down, theological. <laughs> <laughs> like a therapy lesson from God. Rhonda. Rhonda, you had something? No, I'm just sitting there laughing about the theological bludgeon. <laughs> well, it just, it really didn't hit me until we were talking about all this. And I'm thinking, none of this is about somebody else. This is about yourself and what you need to do. Yeah. 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 And it so and somehow that just lifts so much weight off. It lifts the weight of the world off of your shoulders. It didn't belong in your shoulders in the first place. You know, worrying about whether other people are going to heaven or hell is just not what this is about. Even worrying about whether you're going to hell is not what this is about. We haven't run across not one thing yet. Where Jesus and this, when we're through Jesus' core teaching now, we have not come across one thing yet where Jesus has talked about, you know, God is out to get you. God's hiding His will from you, and if you don't find it wherever He's hidden, you're going to hell and you'll burn in torment forever. That's just not in there. It's like better living through Christ. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it really is. It's how to get how to play nice in the sandbox with Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I, I think and it's again, also. Oh, oh, go ahead, Renee. Oh, I think it's also the main point isn't try worry about yourself and what you can do. Don't worry about what somebody else is doing. They got to worry about themselves. It's not your job to try to force somebody else to do something you want them to do. And the other corollary and the other part of this is, and you're all safe in the playground. God yeah. has got his arms around you all. Mm-hmm. Why do we humans have to make it so difficult? Yeah, I mean, the church, it seems like so much of the church has really screwed us up by layering obligations and layering judgment and layering threats and all of these things where they're not present in the teachings of Jesus. They're not present in God's heart. And we're, we're about to, we just finished this t- today. We finished the Sermon on the Mount. And the next series is about Jesus' parables and teachings where he begins outward facing, where he begins teaching the people. These are the collections of his teachings to the people. Of course, the crowds were all listening in on the training. There was no privacy. But but um, this the next series will be uh, about his outward facing ministry and all the times where the disciples then go back and when they get back home, they say, what? (laughs) What did you? And, and also specifically to what you're talking about, Marlene, we will see Jesus completely nail those religious leaders that are adding those weights. He will look them straight in the eye and say, shame on you. It is better that you had never been born. It would be better for you to be drowned. How dare you do these things to God's beloved people? I just had a vision of the disciples sitting around having a conversation much like we've had today. So what did he mean by that? Exactly. it is humorous if it if if you weren't jesus and knowing your time's running out and then these you know guys have got to carry the torch you can just see him doing the oh (laughs) they're not gonna be ready 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 like i don't know pour some more wine they're gonna be fine (laughs) we're gonna send the holy spirit i love you we'll see you next week Start a new series. Me too. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.